you are the main way that God wants to display his majesty here on earth. You are the main way God wants to display his majesty here on earth. How does that make you feel? Yeah. So if you're anything like me, you'll go through two feelings in pretty quick succession. Firstly, you'll think, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, right? God wants to display his majesty through me. Ha! How cool is that? Look at me just walking around, displaying God's majesty. How awesome is that? What a good feeling. Must mean I'm pretty great. Hey, did you hear? God's plan is to display his majesty through me. How good is that? But then, a few seconds later, maybe you think a little bit more about what it means for God to want to display his majesty through you. Maybe that good feeling, that excitement, starts to disappear a little bit. God's main plan is to display his majesty on earth through me. Through me, but I'm not really all that majestic, am I? The things I did the other day, the things I thought the other day, the way I responded to that person who cut me off in traffic, how I was angry at my kids or my spouse, that's not very majestic, is it? If sinful me is the main way that God wants to, di- to display his majesty in the world, well, I guess the world isn't really going to see much of it, are they? To be honest, if my actions are supposed to be reflecting God's majesty, then no one's really going to think God is very majestic. So when you actually think about it, the idea that you are the main way God wants to show his majesty on earth, that's a pretty sobering idea. But don't worry. Uh, as we unpack Psalm 8 this morning, we'll find that there is hope. God still does have ways to demonstrate his glory, both through us and despite us. Before we get into it, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for you, for who you are, for your goodness, your majesty, your kindness and your grace. Uh, We thank you that you are always good, that you are always faithful, uh, that you are always blameless, unlike us. Uh, But we thank you that you still do desire to use us, you desire for us to know you, uh, and you desire to be in a relationship with us. We're just so, so grateful for that. Uh, We pray that this morning you would be speaking to us through the words of David, uh, that we might understand a little bit more about your majesty and how that how we can reflect that and how we do reflect that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so look with me at Psalm 8. I'm going to read the whole thing. So this is a Psalm of David, and it starts out, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, All the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, 
all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the first thing this morning that we're going to be doing is we're going to go through this psalm. We're going to try and understand what exactly David was talking about when he wrote it, what his audience would have understood when they heard it and when they sang it. Then we'll see how it's connected to Jesus. And finally, we'll see what it means for us today. Sound good? All right, let's go then. First thing I want you to notice, and I've bolded it up there for you, is the repetition. We see exactly the same phrase used at the start and the end of the psalm. Book ends it really nicely. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, gives us a pretty clear indication of what this psalm's going to be about, right? And in this first verse, or this phrase, there are a few things, a few fun things to point out as we look a little bit more closely at it. Firstly, you can see that the first word of this psalm, Lord, is written in all capital letters. While the third word, also Lord, is written only with one capital and then normally with lowercase. Now, this is a pretty important distinction, right? By putting the word Lord in all caps, the translators of our Bibles are signifying to us that the word here in Hebrew is the personal name of God, how he reveals himself to Moses back in Exodus, the name Yahweh. And for many reasons that we don't have time to get into this morning, the Jews stopped pronouncing this name at some point in history, this personal name of God. And so now most English translations that you'll read follow this same practice of representing this name with Lord in all caps. So let's have a look at the first verse and read it again slightly differently. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David, writing here, he uses the personal name of God and then goes on to declare how majestic this name of God, this name Yahweh is in all the earth. A second important thing to note is the concept of name in the Old Testament and in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. The word name, the idea of a name, isn't just, doesn't just refer to the same thing as we think it does. It doesn't just designate a person like Lockie or Bill or Jesus or Yahweh. Actually, it's got a bit of a broader sense as well. It does designate a person, but it also brings to mind their reputation, their character, how they've acted in the past. There's more packed into it than just referring to a person. So when David says that God's name is majestic in all the earth, he doesn't just mean that the word Yahweh is majestic, but that his majestic character, his majestic reputation, his majestic actions, these are the things that are displayed in all the earth. Finally, we see there's a kind of missional, a kind of universal aspect to this revelation of God's majesty. It's not just limited to his people, to Israel, but it's seen in all the earth. It's visible to both Jew and Gentile, both those who do follow God and those who don't. And so pondering these things leads us to a question. How is God's majesty revealed or displayed in all the earth? It's a pretty good question, right? And that's what David goes on to explain 
in the rest of this psalm. We see him explain three things that God has done which reveal his majesty. Firstly, he has set his glory in the heavens. In verse 1. In verse 2, he's established a stronghold against his enemies. Thirdly, he made mankind a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honour, and made them rulers over the works of his hands. We see that in verses 5 and 6. So let's start with the second point, and we'll get back, back around to point one. So God displays his majesty by establishing a stronghold. Hmm, interesting. Um, sorry, yes, sorry, off, off topic with my um, slides. God displays his majesty by establishing a stronghold against his enemies. That makes sense, right? God is showing how his, showing his power. He's showing his might. He's building up a place that his enemies can't conquer. He's majestic. He's building this strong fortress that cannot be taken. It's an image of power and rule and majesty and strength. But there's something a little bit weird about the way God goes about building up, establishing this stronghold. Let me put a question to you first. Suppose the king asks you, to, asks you to set up a stronghold that has to stand up to the attacks of a whole army of enemies. He gives you access to any material, any resources, any builders, anything you could ever need. How would you go about building up this stronghold? Who would you employ to build it? You'd probably get a whole army of engineers and stonemasons, build huge walls out of the toughest stone ever. You'd chuck in a few military strategists to point out all the weaknesses and the flaws and so you can patch them up. And then finally, you'd get a huge army of soldiers to defend the stronghold. That sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? But that's not how God chooses to do things. The stronghold he establishes He establishes through the praises of children and infants. Children and infants. Forget your engineers and stonecutters. Forget rocks. Forget massive walls. Forget armies of soldiers. No. God establishes his stronghold through the last people you would ever imagine using, ever imagine employing to build up your stronghold. Weak babies who can't even hold a sword. Infants who can't even walk yet. What is he thinking? Actually, God acting like this, it's not abnormal. It's not out of character for him. It's actually a perfect display of his character. This upside-down nature of the way God chooses to work in our world, this is what he's showing us here. And we're going to see a bit more of this upside-downness throughout the rest of the talk this morning. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But can you see how this, how building up a stronghold through the praises of infants and babies, can you see how this displays his majesty, his greatness? He, he doesn't need strength. He doesn't need the power of man. But he can use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He can use the things that seem foolish and silly to us to shame the wise. Secondly, back on track. 
Uh, we see his glory, we see that God set his glory in the heavens, and this displays his majesty too. In verse 1 and verse 3, it says, You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And I don't think we need much of an explanation here. I imagine most of us know the feeling of being outside on a clear, moonless night and looking up at the stars. Think about that feeling for a second. How would you describe it? How would you explain it? It's pretty futile, isn't it? Too much for words. It's indescribable. It's somehow as if you can actually feel the weight of God's majesty pressing down on you. If you've tried it, you probably know what I mean, what I'm talking about. If you haven't, can I encourage you to spend some time giving it a go one night soon? Going outside, looking at the stars, God's created order, the works of his hands, and just taking in, feeling how that displays his majesty. And this is one of the things that helps us to understand that why David made the comment that God's name is majestic in all the earth. The way that his creation, the works of his hands, witness to his majesty, that's available for everyone, for anyone to experience and recognise, no matter where they are in the world. Paul says this in Romans 1.20, which, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. It seems to me that God's majesty is pretty boldly proclaimed and reflected by the nature he has created. And off the back of that, off the back of this bold and visible and obvious proclamation of God's majesty, we can sort of understand David's next comment in verse 4. We see David write, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Compared to the moon and the stars, the millions of galaxies, and suns and planets, all shining out and brightly reflecting God's majesty. What are we? Tiny creatures living on a speck of dust for a few short years before we die? Well, Genesis 2.7 explains how God made us. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And in Genesis 3, God reminds Adam about what he fundamentally is. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We are dust. We were made from dust and we return to dust. There's not that much special about dust, is there? Not much special about us. And there's not, except for the fact that everything is upside down in God's kingdom. He chooses to use babies and infants to establish his stronghold. 
He chooses mere humans made out of dust to bear his image, to represent him, to rule over his creation. How incredible. How unbelievable. And this is what David marvels at for the rest of the psalm. Look with me at verses 5 to 8. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, all the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. This is just really a reflection on the first chapter of Genesis, verses 26 to 28 where we see God create mankind and give us our mission. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Sounds familiar, right? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is pretty crazy, right? God took dust, unworthy, unimportant, undignified, and he gave it worth. He gave it importance. He gave it dignity by forming it into his own image and by giving it a mission. And he called it mankind. He placed us over all of the other things he had created. David says, God made them rulers over the works of his hands. He put everything under their feet. By doing this, he again reveals his majesty and his character. God shows what kind of God he is. But he also creates us as humans, a bit like mirrors, to reflect, to display, to radiate that majesty on earth in a way that's different, in a way that's more visible, in a way that's somehow more acute than the way that the rest of creation, even the moon and the starry skies, reflect his glory. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But there's a problem. And we alluded to it before. Do you see? This is the problem. These are our dogs. Max the Border Collie. Maya the Golden Retriever. And they're the problem. Well, at least they're the proof of the problem. You see, every time Max sneaks out to eat some of the cat food, and I tell him, hey, Max... Don't do that. Come here. What does he do? He does it anyway. Anytime Maya's got something suspicious in her mouth and she's chewing it, and I say, Maya, what have you got in your mouth? Spit it out. Guess what? She goes on eating it and she doesn't obey me. So much for me expressing God's majesty by ruling over the animals. And these are animals that I should have some authority over, right? Let alone all the flocks and herds all the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, everything that swims the paths of the sea, forget it. And this is our problem, isn't it? 
ever since the fall, ever since sin entered the world and God cursed our relationships with each other, God cursed our relationships with creation, we haven't been able to live up to this task of displaying God's majesty by the way we rule over creation. And that's sad. It's not good. And the author of Hebrews sees this too. In the second chapter of the book, he quotes Psalm 8 exactly, and then he comments on it. He says, But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour. You put everything under their feet. And then he goes on to comment on that. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. See that last verse? Yet at present, now, we don't see everything subject to them. The writer's saying exactly what we've just seen, right? God did give mankind dominion over his creation. He set us to rule over it, but we currently don't see that happening. Not properly, anyway. Not in a way that displays God's glory and his majesty to all the earth. So what's the solution? Do we work harder? Do we somehow bribe all the creatures of the earth with treats and food so they finally obey us? Do we try to become better, more loving people so that somehow, in some way, God's majesty is reflected through us? It seems not. The writer of Hebrews has a different take. Let's pick up where we left off. The verse I conveniently left out. The following verse. We see what he'd just written. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. And then verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. According to these verses, what's the solution? It's not us working hard. It's not us doing everything within our power to snatch back control. No. The solution doesn't actually involve you or me doing anything. The author of Hebrews says that this mission of humanity displaying God's majesty to the world, this mission is fulfilled in and by Jesus. He is the perfect and true human. He uniquely lived a life completely up to God's standards, fully achieving the purposes that God had set for us as humans. Ultimately, he is the one who Psalm 8 is talking about. And here we again see God's strange upside-down way of working in our world through what we think are the wrong things. Look at that last verse again with me. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, is the important bit, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus was crowned with glory and honour. Okay, good, we can understand that. He is God's son, after all. Perfect human, incredibly powerful, sure. He deserves to be crowned with glory and honour, doesn't he? But why? Why did this happen? Because he died. 
wait a second, what? Surely this goes against everything we know. Kings aren't crowned because they die. No, quite the opposite, right? They're usually crowned because of their strength, their prowess in battle, their victories, which usually involves sending other people to their deaths, not going to the death themselves. This is wrong. This is upside down. God, what are you doing? But as we've seen before, this is how God loves to work. He delights to work like this. And the whole gospel forces us to see things in a completely different light. Up seems like down. Death brings life. Weakness is strength. First will be last. The last will be first. The conquering king washes his followers' feet. We see Jesus, because of who he was, because of how he lived, because of how he died, perfectly showing and displaying the majesty of God. Jesus alone is the reason that we can say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So finally, what does that mean for us? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage, he is the true human who perfectly displays God's majesty, does that mean that we can just sit back, chill, do nothing, trusting that Jesus has done it all? Well, yes and no. It does mean that we don't have to take on that burden of perfectly displaying God's majesty onto ourselves because that would be doomed to fail. We don't need to struggle and strive to beat ourselves up thinking that we are the only hope for people to see God's majesty. That's just not true. People can see it. People do see it displayed in Jesus, not in us. And we can find rest in that. But also, no, we can't sit back and do nothing. There are still two things, as far as I can see, left for us to do. Firstly, we can become more like Jesus. Because we who believe, who have been saved, we are no longer slaves to sin and evil. God is remaking us. He's forming us more and more into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus, into this perfect and true humanity. So we can actually display some of God's majesty the way he planned in the beginning. But unfortunately, not perfectly. But as we live like Jesus lived, as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we encourage one another, as we love and rule and care for creation, we ourselves do actually reflect God's majestic character, his majestic glory. But there's also a second way. We take the gospel, this revelation of Jesus, who is the perfect display of God's majesty. And we share this gospel, this good news, with others. We point people not to ourselves, not to us who are broken reflections of God's majesty, but no, we point them away from us and up to Jesus, who is a perfect display of God's glory. As we share how God is at work in our lives, as we preach the word, as we tell people about Jesus, about the gospel, as we send missionaries to translate Bibles, 
and reach people who have never heard about Jesus. As we sit with our friends and pray, as we teach Sunday school, as we sing and worship God, this is how God's majesty is displayed in all the earth. Not in us, but through us as we point people to Jesus. So I challenged you at the start to think about how you are the main way God desires to display his majesty in all the earth. And here we sort of see that that's, that's true, right? But not in the way you expected. It's not that we live lives that are perfect examples and displays of his majesty, like God's original plan for his people. No, we, we stuff that one up. But he has redeemed us and he has given us a new part in his plan. He's chosen to make us the messengers, chosen to make us the proclaimers of the one who did live that perfect life, who did perfectly display God's greatness and his glory and his majesty. You are the main way that God desires to display his majesty on earth because he wants you to be sharing and pointing to Jesus. And this seems pretty scary, doesn't it? It's a bit of a different mission than we first expected, but it's still pretty serious. There's a lot of responsibility attached to it. And we, being humans, we're inevitably going to mess it up somehow. Talking to your friends about Jesus, about the way he perfectly shows God's loving and caring and just character, talking about that hope that he's given you, it's hard. It's often pretty awkward and difficult to perfectly explain. Sitting and reading kids' Bible stories with your grandkids, that might seem pointless, like it's making absolutely no difference. It's even a waste of time, especially if they'd rather be playing on their computers or their iPads or their phones, right? Praying for your family members who haven't yet seen this majesty and glory of God can feel draining after years and years of nothing changing. But if God is able to make a stronghold that stands up to his enemies out of the praises of children and infants, if Jesus is crowned with glory and honour in his death, then God can also use our weaknesses, our flawed words, our flawed prayers. He can do great things with them. Indeed, he delights to do great things with them. So this Easter, as we once again reflect on Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels by coming to earth in the form of a human, as we reflect on Jesus who showed what true, perfect humanity looks like, as we reflect on Jesus who ruled perfectly over all of God's creation, who was crowned with glory and honour because he died in my place and in your place. As we reflect on Jesus who perfectly and flawlessly displayed God's majesty here on earth, as we think about the upside-down nature of the gospel and God's delight in using the weak and unexpected things to display his power, let's be encouraged to be doing our part to share this perfect display of God's majesty with those around us who haven't yet seen it, so that they too, with David, with us, with all of God's children, might be able to proclaim, Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you as we come up to Easter for all of the things that he did for us, for all of the ways that he took our place. Uh, Not only that he took the punishment for our sins, uh, but that he was what you planned us to be, that he perfectly showed what humanity can be like, what it should be like. We pray that you would give us hearts that desire to be more like him. We pray that through your spirit you would be shaping us to be more like him. We pray that you would give us confidence and boldness to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim Jesus crucified, a message that seems like foolishness, a message that seems like stupidity. But Lord, that is the power of salvation. And so as Easter comes, give us opportunities, give us confidence, give us a greater love for you. And we pray that as we reflect on these things, Jesus' name would be magnified and your glory would spread out to fill all of the corners of the earth. Amen.